This week on the pod, we speak with Fahakan Vaparian, professional retoucher extraordinaire. With decades of experience in the industry, he covers his top tips for retouching, his pet peeves, and we discover Tom's weird retouching love. The less said, the better. We also want to take this opportunity to say, send us your questions. We're collating listeners' questions for an exciting upcoming episode. But in the meantime, enjoy the show. Greg, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Um, I'm I'm probably about as tired as you look. Oh, uh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I feel incredibly sprightly. <laughs> We're both just sat here yawning at one another. Um, <laughs> it's been a fascinating preamble. We've really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> We've saved all the good stuff for you. Um, <laughs> So yeah, this week on the show we have um, uh, an amazing retoucher that we're bringing you, uh, Vahakan Vorperian. Have I said his name correctly? You have. Good. It's a bit of a mouthful. It's a great name though. Sounds like a, a supervillain. <laughs> 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 to be fair, he is. No, he's like the. He's like the the anti supervillain. He's like the nicest guy on the planet. Absolutely. Yeah. But the Vorperian has got this kind of strong sounding. I don't know, like Marvel comic book superhero vibes to it. <laughs> well, I mean, look what he does. What he does do is he does do his superpower is retouching, right? Indeed. Like this yeah. is you know we thought it would be great to have him on. Retouching is like a horrible dark art, you know. Um, we all have tried to do really high level stuff, or you know, <laughs> I, you know, I struggle to get to that point, but you know. Uh, we've all tried, uh, but what these guys do and what what Vahakan can do is is honestly on an on another level. So we just thought it'd be really good to do an episode on retouching. So Greg, mm. tell me, do you do your own stuff? Uh, depends on the job. Um, normally, I will for most, for probably for about eighty percent of my work, I'll do it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that is because most of my work isn't really heavily retouched right um and doesn't require kind of skills beyond my own you know like what i can do myself basically mm-hmm. i mean i personally would always want to be in control of grading my work and kind yeah. of the color side of things um but i'll get retouched involved if there's a particularly picky client or specialist quest or you know it's it's involves plate lots of plates mm-hmm. but generally I do it myself um which is a mixed bag because then you kind of what i find invariably is i'll retouch something and you kind of need to look at it a couple of times after you've retouched it retouched it but like you know a few days later well it's interesting because before we came on the air i was just like i'm going to talk about fresh eyes i'm going to talk about fresh eyes you've literally just described what my big surprise was going to be (laughs) yeah fresh eyes it's exactly that you literally take it you know the more and more you stare at an image the more you totally get used to the contrast in it the colors and then you just your your brain just absorbs that as normal so then when you take when you go away you make a cup of tea and go for a wee or whatnot you come back and you're like oh my god that looks horrendous that's way too much contrast that's way too much color you know the skin tone looks really yellow or you know whatever uh, not that I've obviously had all three of those things in the past couple of weeks, but um, you know, fresh eyes are—it's brilliant. You take a take a little bit of time away, whether it is you know a couple of days or or just making a cup of tea, and then you come back and then you can you know imagine seeing that image for the first time afresh. You can yeah. instantly tell whether it's too much. Well, the thing I always find as well is nowadays, you know, that when 
going back kind of 10 years when you're retouching you're generally retouching for print whereas now so much stuff is viewed online and we all spend kind of silly money on fancy monitors and um calibration and what have do, you do we <laughs> we'll get on to that tom um <laughs> i i have a monitor at home and i have the same monitor in the studio um brag. <laughs> well no just because i have to have two they're not you know the the most expensive of monitors they're kind of like mid-range monitors but um i use uh the benq line mm-hmm. and the thing is even with them um calibrated you start to look at it on your mac uh on your macbook or whatever else you know your your main computer is and you're like well actually this screen is what most people are going to see it on Mm. (laughs) not this screen over here that supposedly shows how many million true colors Mm -hmm. and so ultimately it become it feels a bit pointless at times you're kind of like well if everyone's viewing it on here and it doesn't look right on this screen why am i spending all the time calibrating on this fancy screen over here yeah yeah i know i I feel i hear i hear do you know what do you know what i've been doing for uh, probably about midway through lockdown Mm. you know i have a stream deck on my desk which i run my entire life from yeah anyone who doesn't know what a stream deck is it's like a panel with lots of little buttons on it that are programmable and i use you know i've talked about keyboard maestro and stuff on the show in the past and everything's kind of punched in on this stream deck well uh in my in in uh, capture one and in photoshop i have little shortcuts to process out a version into dropbox which is then obviously synced straight away to my phone so i can then check the file on my phone it's honestly it sounds like it's when the you know these amazing like mixing and mastering uh, engineers they've got these you know hundred thousand pound speakers and everything sounds amazing but actually what they're doing is they're exporting a version to listen to the tinny headphones you get with the iphone yeah you know it's basically what we're doing you have to make sure if it looks good on your benq or iso or whatever you use you need to make sure it looks good on the iPhone because you know most of work, most of your work might be consumed through through one of these screens. Yeah. So I I found having the export to just literally just whack a process recipe or just export a file straight from Photoshop into the Dropbox to into the Dropbox to then open it up on the phone. Yeah. Uh, I found that really useful. Do you? Um, I've always been tempted, although not majorly tempted but i've always been had my interest peaked by the um screens that you can actually double as tablets that you can edit on oh the wacom, always... the, the wacom cintiqs cintiqs yeah yeah um you know obviously with ipads and rocket pad and things like that i think is an app on the ipad where you can mm-hmm. do astro, something astro, astro, astro pad astro yeah. pad yeah um the idea of being able to actually retouch straight onto an image is quite appealing because there's something a bit more tactile about that, almost going back to the way that you would have printed in the dark room and the way that you actually... There's something about printing in the dark room when you're dodging and burning that's it's almost like, I don't know, like a, a dance form. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, Do you something I, 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 very I know tactile ex- about it. I know exactly what you mean. Do you know, the only, thing, the only reason I've never had one of them is... I've, well, two reasons. Number one, don't really have the real estate, because I already yeah. have a million gadgets on the desk but secondly i don't want to be craned over like all the time like i feel like a dinosaur most of the time but like i don't want to just be like looking down well i'm sure and the other thing is i'm sure they're great but i do wonder how long the screens last before they get 
a bit like covered in little scratches from the pen. You... I, I'm, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know about you guys, and this is, I don't want to get grim because we've, oh no, hang on, because we haven't talked about my glove yet, have we? No, no, we talk a... about that in this episode. I'll, I won't ruin it. Obviously, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic and very weird, weird thing. But my, um, I don't know if anyone else's graphics tablets, uh, Wacom's, have gone a bit grim. Yeah, they get a bit dirty, don't they? Yeah, but also all the matte coating on mine has rubbed off, uh... so mine's like dead shiny. But it happens to it happens on every tablet I ever have. Like I think my sweat got when a polished Wacom. Like, yeah, when I'm working really hard, um, it takes the coating off off the Wacom. Furious so, retouching. Well, this is it. Obviously, I'm retouching too hard. <laughs> in an angry frame of mind. <laughs> Maybe I should speak to Verhaken about how to how to kind of loosen my grip slightly. Yeah. But um, but yeah, no, it's it's a it's a it's a funny one. I don't know. The Cintiqs. I, I I know a friend of mine. He absolutely swears by it. He really likes it. He's bought a um, it's not an a Wacom. It's one of these other uh, slightly cheaper brands, but the the screen's good. And um, yeah, he re- he really likes the experience of it. But he sent me a picture of his desk, and he's got like a pretty big desk. Yeah, and he's got it all it, kind of. But also, you know, I think it. You works almost with... want something that pulls out, like a, a a drawer that pulls out that you can. Mm. store it on and then push it away when you finish using it you know yeah i mean that'd be like one of those old school keyboard trays yeah although i quite like the idea of sitting you know like in an architect's or draftsman's board kind of desk the kind of curved desks yeah i'd like that that would be a much better way to work i did i did once uh once see a 360 desk in an office so you literally desk. yeah so it was a perfectly circular desk that you climbed underneath and got that into just a chair like in a, the middle <laughs> sounds like a prison mate <laughs> it, but yeah it effectively was it was for the receptionist and she yeah she had three <laughs> three computers that she was working on at the same time did she did she like whiz around on on a wheeled chair yeah between the, like some kind no, of no, no, 90s computer no, hacker she didn't whiz around there was no room so she just spun she literally I'm just sure there's laws against that kind of. <laughs> well, I don't know. It was. I mean, it was a long time ago. It was probably about ten or <laughs> ten or so years ago. But I did often think. I mean, I don't really have the world's biggest office. Maybe a circular desk wouldn't be the baddest, like the worst idea. The baddest, the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I decided Excellent. against that. Yeah, probably wise. Probably wise. Uh, well, listen, we've um, we wanted to also ask our listeners um, for coming up episodes we're going to do another q a at some point so if you guys have got questions um please ping them into the um instagram um or the email and we want to try and collate like a bunch of questions that we can do a, a whole episode of the two of us waffling mm-hmm. um this episode's quite a good long one so we didn't want to take up too much of your time um and it says that we've got less less than a minute of recording left tom so <laughs> Should we get to it? We should. All right. Without further ado, here's uh, here's the latest episode. Enjoy it. Uh, on today's show, we are incredibly privileged to be joined by Vahakan Volperian, who is one of the best retouchers in the world. He's been featured in the Lurzas Digital Artists Worldwide, uh, the top 200. Uh, he has got some absolutely stunning work for uh, editorial, advertising, commercial, TV, movies, you name it, he's probably done it. So, uh, you know, it's it's a great privilege to have you on the show. And thank you very much for taking the time to join us. 
Uh, thank you, thank you. This is uh, nerve-wracking, and uh, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> v, v let let us hold your hand and talk and t and take you through the world of the exposed negative. It's nothing to be worried about. Much. Thank you. <laughs> you are our first retoucher that we've had on the pod. That's I'm I'm going to say that we've been looking to get a retoucher for a long time. So we've kind of we've done pretty well getting you on board. Um, oh given your kind of back catalogue and the number of amazing photographers you've worked with and the kind of, I think it, most of our listeners, if they pop to their, your website, um, they would see pictures that they've definitely seen on billboards and seen around. So it will kind of all make sense. Um, obviously, we've got links to everything in the show notes. So if, if anyone wants to see your stuff, it'll all be there. So let's let's kind of get started on, give us a bit of background to yourself. I mean, how did you get started in retouching and how long, how long have you been doing this? Um, oh God, I've been doing this since I had a bit more hair on my head. Um, I, started, <laughs> <laughs> um, I started off actually uh, wanting to be a proper photographer and that was my aim. Um, actually, I wanted to be an animator and then I started studying photography and found that that was really a, a beautiful medium to be involved in um and mm -hmm. I went to college and everything and I started uh, assisting in the early late 90s early 2000s I started assisting uh photographers mostly for editorial um and I did that for about six years and that was super fun so much fun doing you know vogue shoots to kids catalog stuff oh, it was a blast and then I started doing photography <clears throat> on my own um, which I found incredibly difficult um, not in terms of like trying to get the work in but more about dealing with these hurdles of people um, like these gatekeepers mm. that were you know very much an ego gate that you had to jump over and appease and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and I, I wasn't, I wasn't very good at that. I guess that was also like the, the transition, this transition period, wasn't it? Late 90s, early 2000s from film to digital. Yeah, yeah. Very, I was very the, uh, early days of digital. Yeah, when people would, um, I, I remember a shoot in, um, in Cape Town where uh, I saw the first probably phase one back being used. And uh, the photographer was just... Um, you know, they had a big old hard drive with a bag and everything. And he was shooting away straight onto the hard drive, which I, I was like, what is this magic? <laughs> um, but yeah, that was the, the early stages. Um, and so what did... Uh, Sorry, I, was I mean, just... Tom, I, I can't hear you, Tom. Tom. I think you've muted yourself. I muted myself because I'm a professional, <laughs> you see. We've only done this a few times. This is our thirty recording, and I was like, and I just, yeah. I do you know what? It's funny because when you said, "Oh, we had the first ever digital back," and I leant in and went, "Yeah, it was called the Phase One," and then you guys totally did not, it didn't, didn't land. it was such a great gag. But anyway, sorry, apologies. It's all right. I was just going to say, no, it must, it, it must have been amazing, you know, because I kind of grew up, um, so my transition my transition to digital kind of happened when i first moved to uni and i remember kind of picking up my first digital camera which was a fuji film fine pix s7000 oh 
top of the top of the range kind of thing at the time. A bridge camera, um, weren't they? It was a bridge camera, yeah. My only bridge camera I've ever owned. Yeah. But I remember literally holding it in my hand and just thinking, this is just like a box. I mean, obviously, I've always thought of cameras as like a little box of magic. But then this was just like, <gasps> my God. So I imagine like seeing it on a bigger set, everyone's just kind of going in, being super excited and just completely wowed by it. Yeah, it's got a yeah. whole four megapixels. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. It was. was, the, that, it, it, was it was Imicon. <laughs> yeah, because it was. It was it the Imicon backs that went onto the the Hasselblads originally. I can't remember. I can't I remember. Mm. You can still remember. buy them on eBay for about 300, 300 quid, which at the time they were probably like fifty grand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember the, the joys of depreciating saying. value of kit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that was a, that was a cool so where, thing so, to see. No, absolutely. So where did you, where did you then go after that? So after that, um, when we came back, we did um, the the big the big change was when I uh, did faking it on Channel Four. Uh, I was um, mm-hmm. part of the team uh, teaching this radiographer to turn photographer, and. Um, uh, that was the the moment where I was like, I don't, I really don't want to be a photographer anymore. That just changed the way I viewed everything and the attitude of everyone. I got really grumpy, <laughs> and then I started revisiting what I loved, and I went back into the dark room and I was wet printing and color wet printing. That was brilliant. That was so much fun. Um, and mm. then um, and then I jumped onto uh, a computer and started doing um photoshop again and my original the original photoshop i started working on was photoshop 3 um which was essentially just like layers and masks just about that worked just about well photoshop 3 right that was the first i think the first one to have layers yeah. you had one undo state yeah. is that right <laughs> and uh, yeah and that, i think and, it was yeah i think i don't think there I don't think there were. I think there was like two layer blending modes. Well, it, it was, was like really it was clunky. pretty. I mean, adva- it was clunky, but it's super advanced for the time. I started using Photoshop at Photoshop five, so by that point it had really evolved. The Photoshop, yeah, Photoshop three is. I, th- I think, bizarrely, Petapixel have run an article about someone who's gone back and is using photoshop 3 and experience now having obviously come from the latest version of cc they've Why gone back and that? tried to use it why i, I don't think he's doing it professionally <laughs> all I think right he's done, i think he's done it as an experiment <laughs> all right i was like what how long do they want you to imagine, spend you imagine on that, that guys <laughs> i'm gonna use the most modern of ex- uh, modern of softwares it's photoshop 3 it's from 1991 it's pretty good <laughs> listen we've had we've had all the kind of kickbacks to film it's what the kids do these days you know they go yeah back this to is retro. it New this thing. They don't want to be spending their money on film development, so they're just all using Photoshop three. <laughs> Photoshop. I mean, it's cheap. It's cheaper. What doing Photoshop three? Well, than developing film, yeah, it's much cheaper. Oh right. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that's a that's a uh, an amazing thing that's happening now. I'm seeing a resurgence of film coming through, which is nice. It's nice to see that mm. from photographers. No bet. Um, I bet. But, um, you know, I think these new photographers, they don't really know how to handle film. So there's a lot of kind of, you know, reworking of the the negs, the scans, 
some of the scans I've seen have been pretty, you know, you got to up your game on the scam scans. <laughs> so that um, when it comes on, I mean, screen, it's expensive, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's also one of the most important parts of the process. And I think a lot mm. of people, you know, I, I have a lab that does some quick scans for me. And then I obviously do a deep, deep dive on the ones that I really want. Um, but yeah, it seems to be kind of a just, I mean, I mean film is just expensive in general. You know, we, a couple of episodes yeah. back, we had a photographer called Jim Marsden on. Um, and we were just talking about the rocketing price of, of film. And there's, you know, 20% price hikes on it. And it's, you know, it's all just become almost unattainable and we were saying what a shame it is mm. that you know there'll be a lot of young photographers now who who would like to own a Hasselblad or or like to shoot on a Leica or even a Mamiya or you know even a Zenza like a Bronica or something um but the cost is just really prohibitive so mm. it's a shame it is a shame it but is, where did you, so especially... you obviously Photoshop 3 yeah, sorry, I was just going to say. And so then, we're going to go off. I think we're going to go a bit of a film film photography tangent there. With um, Photoshop three was your kind of your first version. Yeah, that, but that was that at today? uni. <laughs> I've gone right back to Sketchpad and pen, scalpels and safflat. <laughs> nice. <laughs> airbrush, like trying to get those McDonald's the actual uh, airbrush. Air, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, professionally, the first uh, version of Photoshop I used was Photoshop 7, I think, and uh, kicked off from there. Right. Um, and I started um, mm-hmm. working professionally at Touch Digital, and I learned so, oh man, you know, when I got that job, the boss there, Graham, who's a legend, um, he was like, V, can you uh, retouch the skin? And I'd be like, yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> Not a clue how to do it. And I'd sit there and I'd basically <laughs> just learn. I was on tutorials and reading articles and getting books and magazines, you know, like um, uh, what was the magazine at the time? Photoshop Art or uh, I can't remember, but I was reading all of that. And Oh, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he thought I was being dead diligent by staying really late. And I was basically just learning what I had to do for the task he set me that day, essentially overnight, so that I could hand it in the next day. So yeah, that's how <laughs> that's how I learned. <laughs> wow. So he was like, "Yeah, can you do?" I this? mean, that's yeah, proper. Yeah, that's yeah, proper fake it till you make it stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it's, a, it's something I learned. And um, he was and he was happy. Like, uh, but he was happy with I what you turned so. in. I kept my job. <laughs> yeah, I kept my job for five years. There we go. Yeah, and I ended up. Oh, okay. I think at that uh, stage, I think at that sorry? stage you've got kind of, um, you know, you you've got like a, in in a way that you're faking it till you make it. You're also kind of at the cutting edge of where things were going. So, in a way, kind of picking up those things from magazines, there probably weren't that many people that that really knew what was how to do it, especially photographers themselves. It was everyone yeah. was in the same boat of learning, but you took the initiative to really kind of pick this up pick this up and run with it as a as a, something that you wanted to get seriously into because i mean yeah, obviously yeah. even with photographers you know there there's so much that you don't learn from a course in photography that you then have to go right i've got a shoot and uh this is a brief how am i going to light this how am i going to deliver it what kind of technical things and then you do find yourselves even i find myself still kind of 
looking up how to do something because it's going to come up on a job and it's not something I've had to deal with before. But so, yeah, you've got exude um, confidence. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I think it's it's just a natural thing, but it, you have to be a certain personality to kind of pursue those things, you know, and, and to have that that foresight. So you were obviously digging into this. Where did you, yeah. um, where did this lead then? So, so um, you know, just because I started off at, um, uh, at a very junior, obviously a junior level, very junior. And Graham was giving me like, um, so he had a deal with a picture library at the time. So there was a lot of scanning that I was doing. I was learning how to basically scan, color manage at the scan stage so that when things went into the retouch stage, it was very quick because it was for a picture mm -hmm. library. It was, it was about volume rather than about excellence, you know, um, even though the pictures sure. had to be excellent that were coming out, it had to be a very quick process. Uh, so I was learning all of that and uh, that progressed fairly quickly, actually. Um, and then I started to sit with photographers and uh, it was mostly um, uh, editorial stuff that I started off with, um, but it was um, the test stuff. So Graham wasn't really trusting me with um, like his big clients just then. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, and then that progressed to working with his hard hitters, I think, um, and then sharing. So by the end of my time there uh graham had managed to get tim walker on the books and uh we were sharing some of the um imagery with tim walker and that was that was just mind-blowing just learning how a photographer like that looks at imagery and what they're actually looking for in mm -hmm. the imagery and really delicate light-handed shifts in color pardon me um yeah, really delicate, light-handed shifts in color, which were, you know, to to be with someone that could look at a picture and say, yeah, you need like one, two percent cyan in the shadow there and, you know, make the contrast in that area all in the same picture. So, which was going right the way back to when I was wet printing, where you'd get your test print out and you draw all over it, you know, plus one here and grade five there and you know, uh, hold back mm -hmm. here and create a mask for that area and really kind of print the picture. And uh, that's the way mm -hmm. it was dealing with Tim was just printing this, this picture. And that was that was just brilliant, brilliant experience. Um, and then, yeah, also a really unique set of skills. Sorry, I was gonna say really unique set of skills to be able to translate your your darkroom experience over onto the, the digital side of things. So you knew yeah. exactly what he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. I think I was very fortunate because, because like, you know, we discussed, I was at the early stages between film and digital and having an understanding of the wet process um, and the, the, the treatment of that. Back, back then it was like three rolls a shot and on a roll, if you were uh, shooting on an RZ, that's only what, 10 frames. You know, that's mm -hmm. 10, 12 frames, whatever it was. Was it? Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, you know, you really had to have a different mentality towards photography then. It was a much more kind of, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
a much more thought out process, I think, at the at the time of pressing the button, uh, all the way through to mm-hmm. the print stage. Whereas now it's like, you know, yeah. people are shooting, you know, 100 frames per shot or 300 frames per shot and then struggling whether they want the, the shot with a hand at this height or this height. And those those kinds of decisions. You're, I guess you get your, your, your favourite ever five words that you hear, which is, we'll fix that in post. Oh. <laughs> Are we on to the pet hate? <laughs> <laughs> but that is true, I guess. What you're saying is that, you know, there there was, uh, you know, when, when you're shooting on film, you couldn't afford to kind of rely on this. But also there's a difference in the sense that on shoots now, there's there's, there's quite a lot of people involved in the creative decisions immediately. But in in some kind of way, that's also made it harder for them to actually reach a decision at the time. So yeah. quite often you'll have a client that's kind of you know on set and they'll make a call, and then actually that that call gets changed later down the line because somebody else who wasn't on the shoot has kind of got involved, mm-hmm. and suddenly it's a case of oh, can we actually change this now back to what we had? And you might not have the pictures, and that's where it kind of there's a bit of an over reliance on being able to just change anything after the fact. And obviously, mm-hmm. with skilled retouchers like yourself out there. You know, you can do amazing, amazing kind of work with images, but it's, um, I guess the difficulty is you can change something visually, but there's a certain energy that gets lost if something is too kind of manipulated after the fact without the forethought having gone into it, if you see what I mean. You lose some spontaneity, I find. Oh, 100%, 100%. And I think uh, that's one of the... um things that's happening now is this level of authenticity that you have to bring to a picture no matter how you know um hyper real you're trying to make a world um for the final image there needs to be some level of authenticity you know you need to have some integrity in the original shot so that when people are looking at that picture the final image they're not sitting there and thinking well you might as well have just drawn that or gotten a painter to do that or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point. Do you think there, there obviously was a time in the, in everyone's post-production where it was just too much. And obviously that's now come all the way back to now everyone wanting authenticity, everyone wanting realism. I mean, obviously there's still groups of people on Instagram who love that like hyper real, you know, unbelievably smooth skin that doesn't exist. But I think the real skill in retouching now is to make it look unretouched, but retouched. You know what I mean? Yeah, to a certain degree, I say, yeah, to a certain degree. um, It depends, I I suppose it ultimately depends on the kind of image that you're trying to create. Um, And I think this is, uh, uh, you know, one of the things where uh, kind of skin retouching has been brought all the way back because because um, social media is so saturated with filters that completely change the look of people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where where you you're you're not even sure what's happening with, with the image that you're looking at. Um, so yeah, having that kind of <clears throat> pardon me, having that. Um, you know, integrity in the shot, like I said, you know, 
the the authenticity is is really important. Did I just waffle? For that, ages? that being said, <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Um, that being said, I mean, what what do you see as um, you know? Obviously, that you you've, you've explained this kind of transition of the last ten years, and and as Tom said, there definitely was a period, probably about ten years ago, when retouching and post production in shots was getting to the point where it was it was like whole. You know, it's very kind of popular in advertising. It wasn't so much that it was it was d- driven by demand that there were these kind of big fantastical images and then there's been the kind of more of a move back to something that feels a bit more real and especially with the resurgence of people loving stuff that's shot on film you know images that look like they haven't been lit but obviously have been lit but kind of maintain that natural feel these are all trends but where do you from a point of view of the technology and what have you what do you see in the future for retouching because obviously now there are i've seen recently you know people using gaming engines for example to create landscapes that you know any like the mind can come up with anything you know and and literally drop somebody into a situation you've got cgi which is similar to that and is developing as well Mm -hmm. um and if you look at the movie industry you know the um that uh series that was on uh sky which you would have watched the mandalorian i bet you've seen that oh yeah have you seen that? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, knew, I knew you'd be a fan of that. The um <laughs> the that was all shot kind of almost in the round, you know, shot in this a massive uh LED screen so that they can yeah. project, not project, but they can have the landscape they're actually filming in there rather than shooting on green screen, and then that affects the lighting. So with that being said, you know, with those technologies kind of emerging, how do you see that kind of seeping into the stills world and into the photography world? What kind of elements of those do you think are going to be um, taking off in the next over the next 10, 20, 30 years, do you think? Well, I hope that kind of um, uh, technology is brought into the studio where you can create these environments and these worlds as uh, as normal or as mad as you want them to be in the studio. Um, and I think that there's, um, you know, the, the job of the retoucher, I think is just, it's just basically to make, to, to take that raw image and just make it beautiful. So you don't necessarily have to do like Mm -hmm. a billion part comp, um, in order to make something look beautiful. Um, and relying on AI algorithms to make a picture beautiful, um, I think as as brilliant as that is, uh, it kind of takes the um, takes the artistry out of it. Of, of course, it does because you know, as an artist, you want to create beautiful things, right? Or you know, things with mm-hmm. a message. So, um, I don't see there being a massive kind of decline in uh, retouching. I think the kind of headspace of retouching being brought back into that kind of wet printing world um, is going to be more and more um, sought after, I think, because people will then, you know, if you're not, if you're not changing the actual structure of the image, you're changing or you're manipulating the the shadows, the colors, the highlights, and you're, you're then printing the image as you would have done in a darkroom, you know, taking more care over the, um, you know, that one frame and making it the best as that frame 
what was it that Ansel Adams said? You know, the negative is the um, the music score and the print is the orchestra playing the music or something. I'm badly paraphrasing Ansel oh, Adams there, but that's nice. But yeah, so you know, you take that neg essentially, and then make it into this print, which is where where the beauty is, you know. And so, I mean, for those of our listeners who maybe haven't worked that much with professional retouchers like yourself, then talk us through your kind of typical workflow. What what would that look like um, on a on a job like? Obviously, with certain photographers, I imagine you've built, you know, relationships up and it's a lot more fluid. But um, generally, how does it start? Do you get you get approached at the beginning of a project and what do you require from the photographer? What does that look like in terms of deliverables? Um, yeah, just talk us through your workflow. And also, I guess the listeners would be interested in how you actually, you know, um, work on the images themselves do you have any particular kind of folder structures that you use or techniques that you have picked up that you think this is a um, an absolute must you know for example with myself I remember when I first learned you could retouch on a blank layer and let it affect the layer below <laughs> rather than copying the whole layer um, and massively increasing your file size. That was like a total revelation for me at the time. And I remember thinking, oh God, why did no one tell me this before? <laughs> so is there anything like that as well? So I just want to, yeah, just want to kind of, to, to the total um, newbies out there that haven't worked with 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 uh, retouchers, just explain your process. Um, well, I like to, uh, when it comes to projects working with photographers, well, with any project really, I like to be involved way before um, anything is put into you know, before lights are set up or anything like that. Um, just so that we, you know, some jobs can be really kind of um, intensive, even though you don't imagine them to be. Um, you know, things like um, uh, a lot of the specials for TV, um, for example, will, you know, you're photographing talent on a background, but you get 10 minutes with that talent, for example. Uh so you, you mm -hmm. don't really have time to set up your set and all that kind of stuff. So you photograph your talent and then have to drop them into a colorama or something like that. Um, so being involved at the beginning and understanding what the, what the photographer is going to create for me to use and advising on that is really important. So I like to be involved at mm -hmm. the beginning, but if I'm not, um, you know, with the photographers that I work with, they already know that they should get blank plates, build up on um, uh, the set lighting because your lighting evolves throughout the day. So I like to get like mm -hmm. uh, blank plates at the start and end of the day so that um, you can see where the lightings end up. Most of the time, that's not um, something that um, I'm given. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's uh, that's essentially the the main crux of it is is working out what the assets are that you need um mm -hmm. and then the pictures come in and um you know if if there are particular um selects then oh, oh, i'm waffling <laughs> i'm really sorry guys I'm no no you're good. Good. That's that's good. good no that makes sense <laughs> 
this is exactly what our listeners need though is it's almost kind of you know the, the the comment about blank plates for example being at the beginning and the end that's a great tip for most people out there it's not something i would have personally thought about um you know it's only probably in the last i, I shoot a lot of the, my stuff handheld and I've, I've had to really kind of um you know fight against myself to actually start shooting more jobs locked down on a tripod and shoot plates if you're, um, if you're shooting, but I find it incredibly frustrating because it's, it's difficult. Not the way I shoot. If it, but that's a that's another thing that as a as a retoucher you have to um, you know like uh, adapt to, <clears throat> because some some photographers don't want to use a tripod. What the hell does you know? If you're shooting uh, someone in action, why are you going to be stuck on a tripod when you want to be involved in that movement? You know. Um, so as a as a retoucher, you have to adapt to certain things. Um, with the more stage stuff, um, yeah, you've got to take care of perspective, camera height, focal length, all that kind of stuff has to be essentially the same. If you're doing like, um, mm -hmm. if you've got like a, a, let me think, if you're doing a, a, a shot in a, on a street, for example, and, um, you know that you've only got limited time with this person, that person, then everything has to be essentially the same because you're going to group these people together on this street. So mm -hmm. you can't really yep. run around with the camera because someone's, you know, you're looking up the nose on some person, looking on the shoulders of another and that kind of stuff just mm -hmm. won't gel in a picture. Um, well, a classic what, example of this would be kind of the, the the Vanity Fair kind of specials where they'll have all of these celebs in, yeah, and you have multiple kind of people from shot in different countries suddenly all ending up as if they've been lounging around some Hollywood lot, you know, yeah. and, and comped in. And um, that's when you end up with somebody with three legs and a mystery hand on their shoulder, um, <laughs> which was quite a controversy, I remember, a few years ago. Do you remember Photoshop um, disasters? I also have to state at this point, uh, yeah, yeah, I have to state at this point for anyone who who is listening who doesn't know what we meant by shooting plates, and most people probably will, but a plate is is effectively like a um, uh, a blank background shot in a way with the lighting set up that you can use to for retouching if you need to cut stuff out and drop stuff in. Mm -hmm. um, but is there anything from a from the plates perspective? Give us a give us a tip on what you look for in plates and what people mm. might overlook when they're shooting a plate. Um, so, uh, if you're shooting something in a back, uh, in a studio, generally where you've set the camera up is essentially what um, uh, I'll end up using. It's not going to change too much. Um, things things that. Um, uh, are much more kind of involved uh, the ones where you know you need to have a background extension and a lot of um, uh, uh, work nowadays is all about creating more space to be able to crop in and out of and get all these you know formats done uh, so you need a lot of height mm -hmm. you need a lot of ground you need left and right and um, I think um, some photographers think that if you just get the camera and point it left, point it right, that's enough. And mm -hmm. that kind of, that kind of um, stresses me out because you, and let me, let me think, okay, here's a brilliant example of someone nailing 
um, background extension photography um, and doing it properly. Uh, Jay Brooks uh, shooting for um, All Creatures Great and Small Series 2 did a... Mm -hmm. Honestly, they were on set in some village, wherever it was, and uh, he's actually um, essentially photographed a 180 sky to the ground, up to the left, to the right. So I ended up having, in terms of background plates, about uh, 200, 250 plates to stitch um, this environment out of, and there was enough of an empty uh, scene that when the requests came in to make the ground, uh, make the bottom of the frame longer to incorporate text and logos and stuff like that, I could then build out mm -hmm. without creating too many repeats. And he nailed that. And he wasn't using, because normally um, I try and encourage photographers to buy a nodal ninja. Have you ever heard of those? No, so, but I assume um, it's is one that puts the pivoting point around the front element as opposed to the base of the camera. Yes. So when you're photographing right. a scene and you're moving the camera around, you're not drastically changing the uh, perspective as you're throwing the camera around sure. to capture this scene. Um, and it's also being clever about the way you're capturing these plates. If you're if you know that, um, you know, sometimes just from one viewpoint is not enough. You have to pick up the camera, move a meter to the left, photograph, pick up the camera, move the meter to, so that you're then creating this long uh, scene. Because um, some mm -hmm. some jobs need that. So it's being clever and, and talking to your retoucher. As a photographer, you need to talk to your retoucher about uh this because you know they as a retoucher i know that clients want to have x y and z and if they suddenly demand it halfway through a job you need those assets you know and i call those mm. those um those are called assets uh, rather than photography you know um, because they're just bits to make the photography does that make sense so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because um, you know, it's also being respectful with the language of how you how you talk about photography, um, and defining yeah. what's an asset that's just used, and what isn't. You know. Right. How's how's um out of interest that you know obviously with uh, software these days there's been a lot said for capture one um probably the less said the better in terms of <laughs> how it's developing but um one of the features they brought on recently was a panoramic stitch and um in terms of getting a rough you know being able to help with shooting plates for maybe a photographer who's doing their own retouching do you think that that kind of um that kind of software development is useful yeah yeah i don't i, I haven't used um the one in capture one uh, I didn't realize that they'd introduced that. And uh, yeah, Capture One is a tough. I think tough... there are limitations to it, though. I think there's only a couple of, um, I think you can only use a certain amount of images, whereas obviously in the in the Photoshop version, which I assume is the one you use, it can do as much as your computer can process, right? 
yeah, I use a combination of uh, Photoshop and um, ones that are used. Um, MS Paint. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, R.O.P. <laughs> <laughs> And, yeah. and, and and sorry, and and one <laughs> stitch and one stitch. Uh, I use uh, PT GUI. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I use PT that GUI. As... That sounds yeah. like somebody I went to school with. <laughs> <laughs> you went to very posh school. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's used for more like um, you know, if you're creating something for um, uh, to be in a, um, a headset. So using photography to create scenes for a headset, and it's um, it's oh wow, that like must a, be so VR. Yeah, yeah, I think it's used primarily for VR wow. stuff. Yeah, uh, but it's really good. Obviously, I mean to go um, back to what we we're talking about earlier about about the future of where it's going and retouching, and VR is obviously another sphere that I personally hadn't considered because. You know, you, you hear a lot about it for video, but you don't hear it so much about kind of stills in that world. But I guess with the convergence of everything, that is something that's going to be, you know, important mm. to, yeah, you've got to shoot loads yeah. of plates for that. Yeah, well, <laughs> VR is, um, it's a different discipline. I've retouched for VR and uh, it, it feels like a different discipline because um, as you're retouching, uh there's there's VR and then there's uh, stereoscopic retouching. So there 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 are two different worlds. So VR, you can put your headset on and look around a scene and be like, wow, I'm in a inside the sphere of this world, isn't it great? Um, and then there's stereoscopic stuff, which is like, wow, look how far out I can see, you know, and move around. And there's parallax and all that kind of stuff. So that's a different um, right. world of retouching. That <laughs> it's quite a um brain numbing kind of like uh, how do you work out what you're doing is <laughs> then stereoscopic and doing it that way that's uh yeah that's tough tough researching yeah i did so um, to, to, to go back to your kind of sorry go on yeah i was gonna say i did a project um for uh, a vr oculus when they were relaunching oculus or bringing out the oculus 2 uh, their flagship show was um, the David Attenborough uh, Micro Monsters, which was, uh, that's the one that got me into Lazers, really. Um, but when mm -hmm. I had to, I had to create part of the opening sequence, uh, the opening titles, I had to create um, a parallax of these insects, you know, moving in slow motion. And, uh, you know, that was, that was really, really difficult really difficult i had to have a shaft of light and you know if you don't get that right in in the retouch when you're creating it it becomes this weird thing and you have to constantly like in and out of the oculus to check your work that was that was really tough really tough yeah hmm. so so in terms of uh say we're we're kind of you're doing a standard photo having talked about all these kind of futuristic things that you're now having to work on and move your skills into but to go back to say i don't know an editorial feature what would be your workflow so you've got your kind of assets from the photographer and i'm not talking about an overly complicated retouch but do you 
how do you tend to work? Do you, is there like folder structures you use? Is there techniques that you always go to as your base kind of technique for working? Do you rename the files in a certain way? Is there anything like that, 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 you know, somebody who's new to retouching or not that experienced in retouching might benefit from? Yeah, well, the first thing I always do um, is duplicate the original layer. So in your layer stack, you've always, always have the original always and leave that locked or put that in a folder that's called you know original or whatever you just never touch that once uh, once you've opened it mm -hmm. up um then you just uh normally i duplicate out i do the initial clean um and uh um in terms of i i, I like to separate out things like um background and skin because they're the ones that people uh, mostly get concerned about is um, skin tones, uh, skin retouch and background and how a subject is popping away, pop, <laughs> uh, moves away from or is, uh, you know, popped away from the background um, mm -hmm. to make the subject stand out. So I like to isolate this, the subject away from the background and have and have it in a kind of um, obvious way in your layer stack. So the thing mm -hmm. in the most foreground of your shot is at the top of the stack. And the thing furthest away is at the bottom of your stack. So, so you're, you know, as you're reading the picture, I dealt with an art director once years ago where they were, um, uh, they were describing something underneath, underneath, always underneath the um, subject. Um, and I couldn't, so I'm working underneath the thing that I was retouching. I can't even remember what it was. But then I realized what he was actually saying was behind. So, you know, understanding uh. your, the depth of your, ca um, your canvas in your layer mm -hmm. stack so mm. that you, you're not, confusing underneath with behind and above with in front that kind of stuff naming accordingly mm -hmm. you know make sure that you're you know you know that um ah one of the main uh tips is selection when you're selecting your layers sometimes you can you're hunting and hunting and hunting for um that particular layer that's doing that thing so if you're mm -hmm. gonna, if you're doing a lot of work on uh, skin, for example, everything everything that you do with skin goes in that folder, so that um, mm -hmm. you're not like, you know, as we know in a job, you do a, a a picture and halfway through the job, someone has more comments on that thing that you you know like the skin, for example, but three rounds in, they're like, oh, can you sort out the skin color? make it a bit whatever to go in this scene um and then a lot of people that i um well a lot of the juniors that i used to work with would slap that over the top of the layer stack um right. which made it very difficult to work out what was happening where and what's splitting because the more curves you use or the more um, adjustment layers you use the more uh, you're going to split a picture apart you know you're gonna create these um flaws in the um 
in the shadows and in the blacks, you know, where it kind of JPEGs out mm-hmm. and you get like green next to a, a magenta or a cyan or something. And it's, where does that happen? How do you control that? Um, so yeah, be clear about your layer stack and what that's specifically for. Yeah. Mm. That's great. Okay. So, so let's go back onto the stages. So, you know, obviously we're talking about beautifully kept files in a beautifully organized stack with things mm-hmm. separated out, every layer is yep. named. You mentioned exactly. though, you did an initial clean. What, yeah. what gets done in the initial clean? Like obvious things like Starbucks cups, Game of Thrones, if you're watching. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, the initial clean is like, um, you know, like you get dust on a sensor, that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, you know, if, if it's unavoidable, sometimes cables and uh, flash packs are in shot, which uh, that's another pet hate. If you can move that, move it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of stuff gets cleaned up. Um, if it's a shot on a street somewhere, cigarette butts, that kind of, you know, just like a general clean of um, the image outside of um, mm-hmm. the things that are specifically requested. So if someone's very much into the kind of creases on a on a garment, that comes at a later stage. So the initial thing is just to make sure it's like dusting your neg when you're going into uh, uh, the wet printing process. You you dust off your neg, you clean your lens, you make sure you've got a nice uh, surface to work on, and then you start the the printing process. It's that that mentality. Right, right. That makes sense. So then, then obviously, then you go into the. Um the main part of the edit right now now for for your stacks so i i have for my all my photoshop work i have a tiff file which is about three 40 pixels by 40 pixels so the file size is really small but it's already preloaded with all of my layers folders everything's already beautifully named all the layers are colored um and then I just literally just bring that into every document that I work on. So I know that everything's going to be in the exact same spot. Do you do something like that? Or is every job different? Every job is different. It's very difficult for, I mean, some of the things uh, um, are identical. Uh, so the overall grade, mood and grade that I apply to um, whatever the picture or the deliverables are, will always sit at the stop, the top of the, layer stack so Mm -hmm. they're affecting everything underneath and then i can tell what is being split or not split um so some things are identical but i don't i don't have um um you know like a a specific way of creating a folder stack that is you know i can't lift and yeah i don't do that no (laughs) <laughs> long long no long, fair long, i think long. i think it's different for you obviously you're working with a lot of different photographers whereas i'm only working on my own work mm-hmm. so my own work tends to be quite similar so yeah. that that i guess makes more sense for for me with the um the files that you get from the photographer going r- almost right back to the beginning are these mm-hmm. the raw files with are they are they bundled as an eip or are they uh, sorry, not in EIP. What's the what's the capture one format where they bundle it the settings EIP. with the raw file? With... 
Is it EIP? EIP yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So is it is it EIPs? Is it you know TIFFs with a look already across it, or is it flat processed out TIFFs? You know, how do you normally get them? And again, I'm sure it's I'm sure every job's different and every photographer's different. Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, do you have a preference? I assume the RAWs. Yeah, always. Um, I think um, RAWs are always my standard request is just give me the RAW. Um, if there are specific mm-hmm. um, kind of settings that a photographer wants to keep uh, because that's their style of photography, then I try not to manipulate that too much when it's in the RAW stage. Sure. And that's when it comes in bundled as an EIP um mm-hmm. or an xmp some people are still using lightroom which is nice uh well i don't know is it nice um is it nice i don't know um, well don't know. to be honest we all might have to use lightroom in a few years depending on how capture one goes it seems uh, to be like capture one. it's just it, what is the going problem on with catch and one what is going uh, on why are they they'll merge they... it'll be capture lightroom <laughs> <laughs> they might buy it out but um, I don't understand Capture mm. One. Why are there so many different? It's not. Why are there so many different versions? And if you open up a, a previous version in a newer version, you can't go back to the previous version. So you're forcing photographers to always buy a new. It's just. It's just insane. I think you well, hit also, the nail on the head there. Yeah. <laughs> There, there you go. But, but also, you know, Capture One is now Capture One Twenty One Twenty Two. So that, so that instead of doing versions, because if you go on the Capture One Twenty One or wherever, it's not actually. I think it's version fourteen. So you know mm. they've changed they've changed it to become a yearly thing. So now yeah, Capture it One from twelve to twenty, didn't it? Or something? Yeah, and so now Capture One Twenty Two is the two thousand and twenty two version of Capture One. And how much you know, different is it? It's, it's part a- of their. No, n- n- not massively. There are there are yeah. there are various parts of it that are are tweaked. Uh, but the trouble is, they're trying to, I think, rather than they're, they're moving maybe away from their kind of core uh, demographic that has made the software what it is, and are you know trying to open up the software a little bit and maybe make it easier towards people who are maybe transitioning from Lightroom. Um, trouble is that kind of irritates people like us right like for for me i need a super reliable bit of software that just works and they've they've done little things in the past i mean i'll i'll obviously talk about the export tab that they've just removed one version without telling anyone that was good Um, that was frustrating (laughs) oh my god i mean here's the thing speak to the people who use your software every minute of every day and ask them if you think that's a good idea. That's <laughs> yeah. a guarantee. They'll be like, no, we need that. That is actually a fairly, like, as a cornerstone of my workflow. I think, exactly. Please don't get rid of it. Um, <laughs> but then they brought it back because, you know, without being funny, we all kicked off. Everyone, everyone I know absolutely, you know, just lost it with them. And they basically had to backpedal pretty quickly. And then it was put back in the next version. But there's just little things that they do. For example, a few versions ago, and in the past, they had a edit in Photoshop shortcut on the right click, which you could then program to a stream deck. So with one button, I could then open that image in Photoshop. So if I was, you know, I, I, I work in Photoshop for all my luminosity, and then I bring it back into capture for my color, right? 
So I'm quite often flipping between the two. Um, and then just one version, they just got rid of it. And now you have to right click, go down to open with, and then go across, but you have to wait for the menu system to load. And it's just like, it's, it's such an easy win for them to change. <laughs> anyway, rant over. <laughs> rant I'm, I'm, very, I'm very cross was... with it. <laughs> rant accepted. Yeah, thank you. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure there are people a... listening going, "I do you know what? I remember that was a that was a shortcut. I can't believe they got rid of it." But Capture One, if anyone yeah. in Denmark is listening, please, please stop ruining the software that you've made our lives so dependent on. Honestly, yeah. it's making life miserable. Please, please stop it's, it. As a retoucher, as well, you know, I'm I, I work with photographers with a range of budgets. Their their you know their business budgets are totally different. I'm working with photographers that are new to the scene and photographers that have been well established for decades. You know, and those photographers mm. they can afford to have the newest version of Capture One whenever they go on set and all that kind of jazz. The new, the the newer photographers, they'll buy one version of Capture One, and that's it. You know that that's what they work with. So I then have to have an array of Capture Ones on clogging up my um, hard drive because I've got photographers oh, working with earlier course. versions, and if they give me a hard drive and I change it to a newer version of Capture One and then hand that hard drive back. They can't access their own they, they work. Can't. I mean, right. the insanity of that. <laughs> See, that's funny. That you don't yeah. even think about that. As someone who just works on his own in the office, I've I'd never thought about that. But yeah, that that must be incredibly frustrating. Yeah. Does then that I also can't... means I assume? Do you then have to then make sure you have the latest version? Yeah. Just to make so... sure you keep up with any photographers that come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always have the That's latest ridiculous. version, but I have to have older versions because I've got photographers mm. that are using older versions. And if they've handed a hard drive, I can't hand them back something that's they can't then, you know, it's their work. I can't affect their work to such a extent that they, they can't archive it, you know? <laughs> it's insane. Well, that, that would be effectively you locking them out of the session. Hmm. Which I don't think is really what you want to be doing. No, no. How unprofessional. Like you're not allowed your photos back. <laughs> yeah, imagine. My my, my, that's, my, that's... De- my day rates got a bit got a bit confusing because I now own your images. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like holding... that's, that's quite an interesting point, though. So you you're obviously working on a session and then handing them back the session that they. So are you working on the raw files within the session? as well or, or kind of opening them as tiffs and then saving them back into a session rather than delivering kind of just final psds or final tips um well it totally depends on how the photographer hands over files sometimes they hand over the session that they shot on the day and i work through that session uh, normally um and in you know there's always a level of paranoia um most retouchers should have a level of paranoia that's healthy um, in that you don't want to ruin the original thing that's been handed to you. Um, so I'm always cloning variants of um, the pictures as I'm processing out because I don't want to really affect, because there might be a setting, you know, window that I don't have open in my session, 
you know, in, in the mm -hmm. way that I've got my, um, uh, you know, the UI set up, there might be a setting that I don't know has been touched by the photographer. Um, so that's why I always clone out, clone a variant in, in Capture One. Um, and then have when you got I've... Any, um, have you got any kind of systems for, for how you keep on top of what you've worked on and what's been given back? Do you use kind of um color coding on folders or do you use naming conventions because that's the thing of kind of you know if you've got multiple projects on the go something that myself and tom have talked a lot about on the show before is kind of the organizational side of the photography world and the photography business and how we keep on top of certain aspects of our business how do you do that as a retoucher do you have any systems in place that you've developed over the years that work well for you yeah yeah so um each job is numbered uh so when a project comes in I assign it a project number and on the job folder, the main hero job folder, um, I name it. So it's got the number, um, the client, then the photographer. So um, I always know what the, the job number, the job name, sorry, the uh, client, then the photographer. So when I'm looking in my, because mm -hmm. um, I always stack my folders in my finder on the, on the left so i know which ones are the live jobs that i'm working on mm -hmm. um and then i can see all, all the pertinent information is there and i can always cross-reference mm -hmm. that against my estimates and budgets and all that kind of stuff um within that folder then i separate out the brief uh what the client supplied the work folder and uh, most importantly uh, what I have sent and I date those folders. So I've got a, a sent folder and I date those folders um, so that I know that um, if a client's lost something, oh, you sent something, you know, a couple of weeks ago, what was it? And then I can look and I, I can say which, what day I sent something on, you know, what, and that corresponds with emails as well. So that um, mm -hmm. I know that, I separate my emails out into two very distinct threads when I'm dealing with a job, a whips thread, so that I know that any kind mm -hmm. of creative talk, any kind of evolution of the project is in the, the whips thread. And then I have a finals thread so that when a job is signed off and I've handed stuff uh, back to the client, I know that I can search that job name, whips, and the thread comes up job name finals and I know when things have been delivered and finished so I always make right. sure that there's a um, a traceable kind of system that I can find mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. a particular thing that's the most important thing because essentially I do right. the work but if it's not gone to the right place at the right time I failed at my job you know um, because you that's the big part is handing it back or handing it over to the client. Yeah. <laughs> and if I can't do that, no, that there's makes no sense. point. No, it's... Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, keep 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 on top of the the dated scent folders. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, I so think... in, in terms of sorry, I was gonna say jump in on that. Like in terms of kind of things then that, that you would um, point out, do you have any pet hates that you get from photographers? Let's go back to the rants. 
because obviously by going through this we'll be giving photographers tips like don't do this it's annoying mm. yeah um and it makes the, your retouchers life hell yeah what would don't, they be uh, the the big thing is um uh sync your camera uh so the the shutter's going off correctly don't don't make me like try and save a shot that's got half a shutter <laughs> coming through it <laughs> i mean that's <laughs> that a fairly that's is. a fairly basic that's a fairly basic yeah, know, thing but, you would hope but sometimes you know, frame, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah let, let's use the whole uh you know pixel range there um but you know sometimes photographers will hand over the whole shoot to back to the client without doing an actual edit like if you're going to delete pictures, mm. delete them from, there was some, a, a trick that we used to do um, when we were shooting film. Um, so you, you do the shots, uh, you know, you'd be, you know, doing this catalog shoot and you're doing however many rolls per shot. And then the photographer would do their edit and keep their edit really neatly placed within a folder. That's very clear. And then at the mm -hmm. back of the folder, all the other strips, they would cut up, you know, so that here's everything. You ask for everything, but here's everything in a really unorganized way. So if you want to go through it, go through <laughs> it. But here's the here's the stuff that's right. And go through that one, you know, right. if you've got mm. the effort to do that. And that's the um, one of the mm. things I think is as a photographer, if you're if you've got shots that don't work, literally they do not work get rid of them because someone mm -hmm. will, one client will show their five-year-old daughter do you think this is nice and they'll say yeah use that one <laughs> and then i have to spend eight hours trying to get rid of i don't know someone's thumb like taking up 50 of the screen <laughs> oh five-year-olds man they're terrible art directors <laughs> honestly i i did a job uh for a pharmaceutical uh, um, client, and there are so many stakeholders, they call them, so many people involved. And, you know, everyone's trying to justify their their position at that table with having creative comments that, and a lot of these people aren't creatively minded. Um, and I think that there was someone who was high up in the pecking order that was showing their daughter, their child, uh, daughter to have a look at the pictures and those comments were then filtering back and I'm like why are you doing <laughs> this but you can't turn Imagery around and say says. client you're wrong <laughs> no of course yeah right wow. yeah that's wow. another pet hate that's don't it. let your five year olds did we, did we discuss this on the pod before Tom I seem to have a vague recollection of um, yes. Disney and Hairy Arms no, so so I had a uh, Disney and hairy arms. Yeah, like Snow White and her hairy arms. What? What? My, what? Who's who's hair and hair? So, oh, ladies, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, to. this is what happens. There's a stroke happening on air. <laughs> no, so it was it was a thing back in the day when they used to make. Um, uh, the the Disney kind of uh, animators apparently would leave in kind of something quite obvious, which was something like Snow White would have hairy arms. Yes, we and did. And it would be 
it would yeah see i'm not mental no okay, you okay. no i, well, I, I remember this I, either I, yeah i right and and it's like a it's a false flag so they don't they focus on that rather than the yes right you give them something to actually spot that you're always planning to take out mm. uh, who does that happen to oh, be like snow that. white's beard <laughs> i can't remember oh, i can't I like remember who told us that. that but that was a if anyone wants to go through the last 30 episodes and let us know that would, that would be great <laughs> But yeah, no, I do remember vaguely having that. It's just the way you brought it up. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Sorry, my mind works. But there's a there's a term that came off the back of that. Basically, it's an actual. Is this was you know animators in the, I guess it was Snow White it was late fifties, sixties, was it? So you've got people who are, um, yeah, all the way back then, kind of having to put something in because the execs are going to have something that they want to say, some creative input. I, you know, understandably. You know, if you give if you give somebody a choice, you're kind of like making them think they have to have uh, an opinion rather yeah. than being like, you know what, no, that's good. You know, <laughs> you're yeah. putting them into a corner where they're going to go, oh, yeah, I've got to find something at fault here. I, I do actually, I have just quickly Googled it and I have found the name for the term. Okay. It's called the hairy arms. So it turns out, turns out a very well-known thing. So I do apologise. I'm not worried. This no, well, is something well, I'm going to well have to use. Well remembered. <laughs> yeah. So, so what other pet hates do you have? There must be there must be a few. Yeah, don't, uh, people that don't clean their sets before they start shooting. I mean, if you know that you're shooting in that direction and uh, you've got your location van, you've got your um, you know snacks table set up, move them. <laughs> <laughs> don't photograph things that get you crafty. know are can... get crafty out of the way <laughs> uh, there was a photographer um, that um, I was doing some stuff for years and years and years ago and he he sacked a, an assistant for that because um, he said to the assistant can you move all the kit because I'm going to be shooting this direction and the assistant was like ah you take it out in photoshop and uh, after that he never called them again because you know, mm. you've there are certain things that um, you know. Why do you want to pay? Well, that's basically taking the job that they've been given and <laughs> saying, "No, someone else will do that." Yeah, I, exactly. I can't bother to do it right now. That's ridiculous. If you can spend five but minutes also, on set doing something, thirty seconds. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's... If you're if you're doing something on set that takes you next to no time, but then we'll tag two hours in the retouch that you have to pay for. <laughs> you know mm, that's mm. like don't be insane just you know do do your there's, job there's also an element of it's seen as a bit of a magic wand isn't it kind of like oh well we can we can change that in post and sometimes there'll be somebody on set that will say that who's not you're like yeah but wait, hang on a minute you're not the one doing the post <laughs> and i feel like you've you've heard that somewhere that that's an easy change but actually it, it affects xyz that you might not be aware of exactly um and I've occasionally have had that where someone's jumped in and they've gone, oh, no, 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 don't worry, we'll sort that out in post. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on. <laughs> it's, it's not your position to say that. Like, let's actually discuss this first. And if we can change it now, let's change it now. I much prefer to get stuff right in camera than to yes. have to fanny around later with something that is just never going to be quite as good as, as you said, that 30 seconds of extra effort or that five minutes of extra effort to to get it right in the first place mm -hmm. well there's a there's also go harking right back to that authenticity 
you know if you if for example if you've got um let's say you're uh shooting something and it's got a lot of haze you're using a lot of um um you know fog in on your set to create atmosphere and then you've got light stands in your shot um and then um you know you you can then remove those lights that if they if they need to be out and you've got a hazy set remove the light stands um and have an empty plate so that when you when you have to remove them in post you're not muddying the haze that you've created you know there's there are techniques Mm -hmm. of cleaning Mm. your set which don't take very long that actually become very difficult in um in post to be able to maintain um like that that beauty of something that you're creating does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah but that brings me on to an interesting point actually because i I did a shoot recently and um i was having to shoot plates of haze that i wanted to you know in case we needed to extend the background um and i've heard a lot recently of photographers starting to use i mean it's makes me feel like we've gone back to the 80s a bit but starting to use things like promist filters rather than just for filming they'll start to use them on stills things to kind of add you know a certain je ne sais quoi to the picture (laughs) but how do you feel about okay so first question how do you feel about filters being used on camera that are going to affect the image quality versus replicating them in post because that's an interesting debate in itself you know some people say it's very difficult to actually replicate the look of something like a promist in in post and number two, do you have any tips on things like shooting haze and atmosphere as plates? Is there something people should bear in mind? Like is a, uh, you know, shooting it on a certain color background rather than or sh- shooting it on white or shooting it on black? Or is there a certain way to shoot stuff like that that actually makes it easier in post? Um, well, it, it's funny that you should say uh, shooting on a particular color background because a lot of photographers think that shooting something on a green background is actually beneficial for the the shoot that you're you're doing you know uh, knowing that something is going to be comped um so green screen is a film technique sorry i'm going off the haze onto green screen rant green screen is for film and uh, they use specific software to remove the green screen in order to um you know composite whatever they're doing in the in the film and because you're using 24 frames a second the the level of cutout doesn't necessarily have to be as particular and also the uh, software that they use also remove the green from from skin tones so people don't look so sallow for the most part that's mm-hmm. you know you can you can see budget films where people have got like green fringing and stuff like that so photographers that shoot on green screen are making a huge error in in the amount of time that's added in post afterwards. Um, so I always recommend like a grey for people that you know that you're going to comp out because that way you're focusing mm-hmm. on the lighting and there's no colour bounce. There's no white, back. don't shoot on white, you know, because you're going to get white bounce and white fringing, which is a nightmare to get rid of um so but then that goes back to being involved in the pre-production conversations when shooting haze Mm -hmm. i would say shoot in a black background black studio and so that haze when it's applied to photography uh photography in in photoshop you're using your blend modes in order to bring that haze through 
um, if it's photographic haze that you're using, because you can create haze in Photoshop. Um, but if you're using photographic haze, then shoot on a black, solid black, so that when you bring that into Photoshop, um, you're actually, through your blend modes, just using the haze itself. It, you know, you knock out the black mm -hmm. using screen or whatever whatever technique yeah. you're using for so that. So it's a bit like shooting flare, you know, sometimes if you want to put an artificial flare, it's similar, you'd want to shoot it on black so that you can use screen mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are other okay. uh, blend modes that you can use as well, like hard mix sometimes is nice or pin light or, you know, the, you know, flick through your uh, uh, blend modes and see what works best for that particular application. Mm -hmm. And how about filters then? The filters, I mean, if you're if you're photographing something and you want to use your filter um, as part of the photography, uh, you know, then then use it, you know, uh, don't be don't hold yourself back. If it's something that you know that's going to be a heavy comp. So let's say um, if you're shooting something for editorial, you're going to use your filters as you like, because editorial tends to be, you know, you take your picture you just do some color work to it a bit of a cleanup and then it goes into the magazine or whatever and it's you know that's a really lovely workflow with the advertising i think if you're if you know that you're going to do several people as a comp and you want to use i don't know some old school coking filter that makes you know it look like you're looking through bugs eyes <laughs> and it, but you want to comp 15 people into a scene don't use your filter <laughs> but then um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I still recommend that um, you shoot uh, reference plates so that um, when it comes into post there are things that a good retouchable spot that will then mm -hmm. manipulate into the scene to create that um, reality one of the things that I always told my mm -hmm. um, uh assistants so I, i've had a couple of assistants in the past um and uh, the main thing I, I i would say to them is not so much um does the picture that i'm working on look real but to ask the question why doesn't mm. it look real and really work out why right. it doesn't mm. look real is it the shadows is it mm -hmm. the aberrations mm. is it the perspective is it you know all those kinds of things it, uh, have you got a difference in black point you know some pictures you'll look at and you'll think yeah that's it's good but there's something weird and it might be that the black point on the background is you know like two points off or is green and the black point on the subject is blue or something you know so mm -hmm. it's, it's working out things like that why isn't it real and spend time on that thought mm. you know Here's, a, here's another quick geeky question then out of interest. Um, how often do you calibrate your monitor and what steps do you take to kind of mitigate any issues with color calibration? Do you, do you have any recommended monitors that you use, any recommended calibration tools that you use and any kind of tips or techniques that would make things a bit easier for people? Well, I'll just show you exactly what I've got kicking off here. My... Oh, <laughs> display. The I one, uh, yeah, I've got the, yeah, I've got that kicking off. I one Display is, uh, Pro. Uh, well, but, I'm glad to see that because that's uh, 
what I've got to. Mine's, <laughs> mine's, <laughs> in, mine's in the drawer. I like I like the uh, but monitor- um, UI. Yeah, I like the way that monitor wise. So yeah, I, it's pretty, stra- I it's pretty straightforward, a, isn't it? Yeah, there is a bit of a delay, isn't there? Um, yeah, so monitor wise, my main hero monitor is my iMac Pro, and um, luckily nowadays um, there used to be back in the day there used to be big differences between this monitor and that monitor, and you know this um, make and that make, and you really had to be uh, on top of your calibration because the color would slip, mm-hmm. which I never understood how, because it's maths, right? Color is maths when you're dealing with computers. Mm. So how does the maths go? Um, but anyway... Um, well, it would be a de- degradation. It would be a degradation of the panel, right? Well, if you... Yes, I suppose. But how does it... Anyway, I don't, I don't know how it... How, color, how colors back in the day used to slip hugely. So you'd start mm-hmm. off with like... Mm. I don't know, whatever kind of white point, luminescence or whatever. And then, you know, a month later, it's like completely and utterly like somewhere else. How Anyway, but nowadays mm. it, you don't have that kind of huge changes. So um, uh, I calibrate my screen. Anytime I move my screen, I calibrate it. So uh, when mm-hmm. I was moving from uh, the bedroom when we were working from home at the beginning of COVID and when we finally got the office sorted upstairs, I calibrated the screen then. Um, and that was, when did I move up? So that was about two months ago. And I think maybe calibrating or having a look at the calibration every three months, every quarter, mm-hmm. you know, is a, okay. probably a good thing that makes to, sense. to look at. Um, but I mm-hmm. think, with the integrity of screens now, you know, you don't really have to um, look at it that often as you used to do. There's, mm-hmm. there, there's mm. stability now. But with um, like my NEC, uh, so I've got two screens. My tools are on my right-hand mm-hmm. side. Um, so I've got an NEC, an old NEC that's like 12, 13 years old. Um, and because I know that the color changes often on that i never use that for anything to do with color so that's always going to be my tool screen anything to do with color Mm -hmm. i bring back into my uh imac pro screen so because i know that that's stable sure Mm. makes sense i did have an imac pro actually greg you a bit of a sore subject i know but you also had an imac pro didn't you i still do it's just sat in the studio not being used because of some Colonel Panic, who sounds like Colonel Sanders, but he's not. He's more annoying. Um, and I can't work out whether or not it's worth trying to take it somewhere and get it fixed. It's definitely, definitely a hardware issue. Yeah, definitely uh, think, get it fixed. But but where is good to get that stuff done these days? Just Mac itself, I guess. I Apple, suppose yeah. so. They're, they're... Apple, take it to Apple. You could, you could um, go to the... Um... Like Jigsaw, maybe we'll have a, um, a team. And you're That's warranted. who bought it off. Oh, really? Well, have you spoken to them? <laughs> yeah, a few years ago. But I think it's a hard... Uh, I haven't. I need, I do need to. I kind of feel like they're going to be like, yeah, you bought it about four years ago. <laughs> 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 if you can get it fixed, I mean, there's... It was actually refurbed. 
was refurbed and it's the what happens is you put a i think it's something to do with the usb and all the um alive sorry this is totally off topic but somebody one of our listeners might know there we go i'm going into it um so all the ports at the back seem slightly misaligned so for example Uh... the sd card slot stopped working and the headphone port was kind of always a bit kind of fiddly which makes me think they're all slightly out of whack. And what it is, is that one of the USBs or the Thunderbolts that goes into the back of it is causing that kernel panic because they're slightly knocked inside or something. I don't know. But that's my basic uh, monkey brain, you know, trying to hit it with a rock and figure out what's gone wrong with it. Well, that sounds like <laughs> a sensible uh, thinking process behind that. But if you can get it fixed, get it fixed. I mean, it's yeah. a piece of kit, isn't it? And if you can't get it fixed... Mm-hmm. yeah. This is the this is another um, thing that I always uh, um, say is like if you have a piece of kit, don't love it. It's just a piece of kit. If if it breaks, it's just a tool. It's exactly don't. This isn't a child. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If it can be fixed, <laughs> fix it. If it's always... broken, bin it. <laughs> yeah, I always had a very. Um... Many, many years ago, I interviewed uh, Stanley Green, who is a was a fantastic photojournalist who sadly passed away not too long ago, actually. Um, yeah, he'd photographed uh, conflicts around the world. Um, he's got an amazing book called Black Passport about his time in Chechnya. And um, when he was very much younger, he'd worked uh, in the studios of uh, Eugene Smith, who, again, was a very talented photographer, um, but slightly tortured. There's actually a Johnny Depp film that's just come out about him in Japan. Um, Mimota, I believe it's called. Mm-hmm. But he, anyway, when he was um, <clears throat> famous kind of magnum photographer, had photographed throughout World War II, suffered probably some degree of um, post-traumatic stress, was very addicted to amphetamines. And one day Stanley came into the studio as a young lad and um, uh, Gene would have these kind of, days where he would literally spend days uh, downing um, various pills uh, big big taker of speed I believe at the time and all sorts of amphetamines so he'd spend days awake printing and working in the dark room um, and drinking and um, Stanley came in one day with his brand new like SLR that his parents I believe had saved up and bought him um, as a present I mean I might be butchering the story but effectively he had this new camera and Gene said what's that Stanley show me and he kind of gave him the camera he took it and he hammered a nail into a piece of wood <laughs> with this slr tossed it back to him and said remember stanley the camera's just a tool <laughs> <laughs> give him a chance to and use that might it though. Be a crocodile tale but i i yeah i like to think that that's uh that's true i love that that's yeah it's a great synopsis of we do get too attached to kit yeah well, and I, at the end of the day i have a similar tool. i have a similar story so this, so this is my Leica Q2, and that I don't know if you can see, is where I was opening bottles with it on a shoot. I was nice. opening beer bottles with it, and everyone, <clears throat> you know, it's a it's a four and a half grand Leica or whatever, and everyone could not believe I was doing it. And then I dropped it and kicked it across the floor to make a point. <laughs> uh, and then about a month after that, I accidentally dropped it in a lake. So. Look after your kit it's a little bit better than I do. No, no, sadly, it's a brick. So it's 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 full on dead, but I've kept it mainly to tell stories of how I've now got a Leica bottle opener permanently. 
what else can you bludgeon with that? Come on, <laughs> think creatively. Oh, I mean, all sorts, all sorts. It is, it is a heavy bit of kit. So it's actually my, it's my hammer. So it works quite well. Listen, V, we, I think we're going to start wrapping this up now. But before sure. before we go, before we get onto our usual bit that we do with everyone, um, I would love to chat to you about uh bits of kit that i think people can um people can buy that maybe make life (laughs) a little bit easier maybe as a as a retoucher um you know obviously i think i think things like this this might be one of my weirdest purchases ever uh for anyone who can't see (laughs) this this on the screen this is it's it's odd isn't it but it's kind of like it's a very very odd thing but when well, i'm because because your camera's quite dark it looks like you've only got th- two fingers and a thumb <laughs> but it's actually because your your pinky and the index finger have gone ninja yeah right if i if i pull pause... are covered in like a tight black neoprene or was it not it's not neoprene is it what is it like a no, it's neoprene. yeah it's kind of like a, it's just like a yeah. Span- spandex, spandex that's a better way yeah it's basically spank tom is now wearing a spandex glove i'm wearing spanx but on my hand <laughs> And you, you know, you it's, and a it's but I, <laughs> I am currently in my retouch outfit. Shh, business up top. You look like you're in a retouch at the bottom. The backing dancer for Madonna in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I wish I hadn't bought it up, but you know, it, it, it has helped me, and I, in a way, and I, I think that's not even your retouching hand. No, I'm left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm right-handed. But it, you know, it's it. There are little bits. You know, obviously, I bought a Wacom years ago, and that that kind of changed a lot. Um, you know, I assume you're going to say get a tablet. But is, is there little bits of kit that? What tips can we give to people? Obviously, control the lighting in your office so it's always as as the same yeah. as possible. Um, yeah. Also for shooting, because the Nodal Ninja Six was a good shout. Yeah, um, we'll we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anything else that they can take from when they're actually capturing the pictures to editing them that would make their lives easier? Do you think? Um, no, I think that's uh, you know, I mean, you you don't need much decent to re- tripod. Yeah, you don't need much for for retouching. You need a computer and a tablet um, and spandex. But mm. other than that, you don't really need anything anything specific. Oh no! Does this mean does this mean I'm going to have to leave that bit about my spandex glove in? I th- I thought you'd be like, right, guys, here's a list of 25 things, and we'd have to cut that down. Now now my hand is now going to be in the in the show. Damn. I definitely I recommend a retouch blanket if you if you want to feel like that. There's some uh, <laughs> oh, <yes>. sharing. <laughs> I have a retouch blanket to keep my knees I can toasty. F- fully endorse a retouch poncho. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because my studio is so cold that I have to have that and fingerless gloves. I kind of hey. I edit in a Dickensian world. So I'm not the only one who wears fingerless gloves. <laughs> Good. All right. Uh, Mine are like something out of Oliver, though. So. <laughs> I mean, the, if, we, um... if we're thinking about kit, the, the nodal ninja as brilliant as mm-hmm. that is you don't have to to buy one when you're uh, photographing for stitching you just have to be clever about the way you stitch the nodal ninja just makes um the end stitch really easy um and it depends on how mm-hmm. much time mm-hmm. you want to spend doing this versus that you know that's 
you know it's the yeah, right sure. piece of kit for the right reason you know don't buy something if you're mm-hmm. if you're editorial and you're shooting mostly in studios when you don't you're never going to need to use that 300 400 pound piece of kit you know of course mm. makes sense makes sense so i mean that's been a fascinating chat if i'm if i'm honest um Thank, yeah there's lots in there mm, a ton I was, um, can i a lot about your waffle <laughs> Oh no! I mean, oh, to be no. fair, I'm paranoid of waffles as well, but I quite like them with chicken and uh, chicken and maple <laughs> syrup. So, wouldn't Combine. wouldn't worry. Um, we always ask our wonderful guests. Uh, they unfortunately they come on the show. We strand them on a desert island. But don't worry, there's electricity. There's a lab. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Really, to be honest, it's it's starting to sound like quite a good party island for photographers <laughs> and yeah. obviously people like yourself. <laughs> now. Uh, Obviously, your background in photography, I'm sure you have a Desert Island camera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got um, like a couple of on my stand there. I've got like the Polaroid Land and uh, Holger, which are which are great little play cameras. But I think the a tank like the Pentax K1000, just a camera mm-hmm. that does Ooh. basic thing. It's got a hole at the front. Hammer nails. Yeah. It's got a hole at the front, film at the back, you're done. That is essentially if it's if this desert island has a lab, that is the uh, camera with a 50 mil lens. What more do you want? Perfect. Well, that's it. Yeah. Quite this this island has unlimited film and unlimited lab costs just built into. I don't know what the currency is, but it's basically free. Free coconuts. Because like if it was if go. it was totally free, then yeah, I would I would also add a Polaroid land to that and for um, Polaroid transfers. I was just getting into Polaroid transfers nice. and mm. everyone started going digital and I couldn't nick the Polaroids offset anymore. Very very angry. Oh about. damn! <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then also there is our desert island or your desert island photography book uh um yeah i was thinking about this last night and i think um it would have to be robert frank's the americans mm-hmm. because good choice it's a solid that, choice that i don't think you're the first guest to to suggest that, that actually really i think when we did our own one i might have suggested it because I have the extended version that's got kind of all of the contact sheets oh. and uh, writings and all sorts in there. Oh, oh man, did you go to his exhibition ago, yeah. at the Serpentine? There was an exhibition at the Serpentine years ago with his uh, with his work. Absolutely, just to... I'm not sure I did. I think it was in collaboration with the exhibition they were having at the ICP. Oh, right. Which was later, was, was probably about 10 or 12 years ago. The insane Clown Posse. <laughs> yeah, a big, big Robert Frank fan. I don't. That's like that's an odd venue and an odd crew to go to. That fun though. They're American though, right? They are. So, that's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> but that, that that book is that's a great book. Yeah. Um, There's actually actually a picture. I don't. So I've got um I've got a smaller version because I was trying to find because we've still got stuff in storage i was trying to find um the americans but there is a picture this is the picture that actually made me want to be a photographer and it's not actually from the americans it's actually from 
um, London and Wales, which is a weird book title where you have London, but then all of Wales. <laughs> but this one from Robert Frank's book of London and Wales. Can you see that? Of a man in a bowler hat walking down is the street. Yes, in a London bus, kind yeah. of in the fog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the 1950s, that's yeah, beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. 51, London. That is the picture that made me want to be a photographer. If you... Ooh. If you like that, you should check out um, Sergio Loran's book um, that came out a few years ago. It's a mix of work of his from, I believe, Bolivia and Chile, but also there was a period of his life when he was in London. It was around the same time as Robert Frank. And there's some amazing street photography in there of London, like old London, uh, the, that Sergio, really echoes that image. I think street um, photography, nice. that is so, the bravest photography, I think, because there's brave photography mm. of going you know, into a war zone and photographing that and telling that narrative, which takes a certain level of braveness. But I think street photography, because you're just, it's a day-to-day thing. The level of bravery to be able to mm. pick the camera up and photograph these scenes around you and interacting with these uh, with the people around you, but not interacting at the same time, it's just it's phenomenal. Street yeah. photography is beautiful, very brave photography. I think. You see, I, I think it's one of the toughest toughest genres of photography to do well. Yeah, yeah. See, but I, the... I would argue, devil's advocate here. I, I would argue that that's less bravery and more confidence. Well, well it's I mean, brave street, to... street photography, you're not going to lose your life. No, no, I don't, I don't mean brave semantics, in that. Semantics. Yeah, I don't mean brave in terms of like uh, life-threatening situations. It's a different, I mean, brave, different level of brave, isn't it? it it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an internal braveness of, um, uh, mm. you know, being able to... You know, it's difficult to um, explain because I've not actually had to have well, every a day you go conversation out, you're facing like this. potential. Yeah, <laughs> but every day you go out, you're facing potential failure. It's it's like yes. you, you are going to get far less hits and far more misses. Sorry, than you far more misses than you are going to get hits. Yeah. And um, it takes a certain type of person to pick their camera up and go out day after day, knowing that that's the case and knowing that they are not going to be defeated mentally by the idea of of going out and trying to find a picture. Because unlike editorial or portrait or still life or anything really, where you're actually creating the image, street photography is, there's obviously an element of creation of waiting for the elements to come together, but it's also a lot down to taking an image. Mm. And there's there's always that interesting divide between taking and making and, and how that kind of plays into what you can control and what you can't control. Exactly. I couldn't do it. Yeah, it's it, it's. But we will have a street photographer on in the future, and we'll grill them on their technique. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting conversation, and finding out how they handle their own internal struggle. I reckon it's a, a struggle to, you know, the camera becomes heavy. Like, are you are you going to take this picture or not? You know, that's how I felt running around yeah. London and taking pictures and looking back at the contact sheets, going, "I am shit at this." <laughs> oh dear amazing yeah Yeah. no i i I hear you i hear you but 
Um, I think that's a good place to end it. So um, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, you've left us with some really good tips. Um, mm. Little nuggets, as we like to call them. We, for we no, you. I, I, I don't say nuggets. I say gems. Okay. We'll go with gems, gems, right. and, gems and nuggets. <laughs> Love it. So, yes, we really appreciate you coming on. And um, we will, if people want to find you, you are on Instagram as... Vagen Volperian, uh, which is long spelled out. Vagen Volperian, very quick. Um, but yeah, th- there's links <laughs> on my website, thehyphenretouchers.com. So if you want to check yes. there. Mm-hmm. Thehyphenretouchers.com. That's mm-hmm. where we can find you. Yeah. And all the information is on there. So once again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And uh, really appreciate it. No, thank you very much for um, asking me to be part of this. And hopefully it's interesting and not waffly. <laughs> No, it's been great. It's been great. Really appreciate it. Hey, guys, and thank you so much for listening to the latest episode. If you'd like to stay in touch, there are a number of options for you to uh, reach out. We can be emailed um, at info at exposednegative.com and you can find us on the website at exposednegative.com or on Instagram at xnegative. We're pretty good at responding to DMs on there. And we're also on Twitter at exposednegative. You can find us personally on our own private accounts on Instagram. Uh, Tom is tombarnes.com and I am just Greg Fennell. Cheers. Thanks for listening.